If you're like me, you have some places where you have traveled where the distance you are going feels like it is a lot further than what the odometer on your car would tell you. For me personally, I don't know that there is a greater distance on this planet than the distance between Beersford and the Vermilion exit on I-29. That has to be like the Twilight Zone or something. It feels eternal. Um, I also have that with the eastern half of Iowa. Uh, It's a bunch of rolling hills. You've probably driven on I-80 across Iowa. Every time you crest the top of a hill, you're hoping you're going to see the Mississippi River and you're finally going to be done. But it isn't there every last time. Many years ago, when, uh, in 2001, when we moved east, we drove a rental moving truck that had a, had a governor across Iowa on I-80. We'd finally get up to the speed limit going down the hill, and about a third of the way up the hill, we were going 35. And that's all it would let us go. We never felt like we were going to speed up. That trip took an eternal trip and at least doubled it. It was, it was awful. And you probably had this with your children, too. It's significant with kids. I remember Joshua, when he was younger, uh, he would nearly be on the verge of tears when we told him we had to take that eternal trip from Lenox to Sioux Falls. Sioux Falls! Oh, it was terrible. A few years ago, we were making that trip, maybe a year or two ago, And he said, why was I so upset? It's like less than 15 miles. You know how that goes. The the perception of distance is different than it is sometimes. Some places feel so far away. So as we return to the book of Genesis this morning, we find ourselves once again in a long story about Jacob, but we see a bigger picture here. He is going back to something that feels so much further away than it actually is. Now remember, he left the area near Beersheba because he had stolen his brother's blessing and Esau wanted to take his life. He had gone to find himself a wife from among his mother's family and he had done all of this. He's been gone for a long time and he's established himself in this new home. He has labored for many years and through that work he now has two wives. During this time he's had 12 children, 11 sons and one daughter. And This last week, we saw that he has labored even longer and he has acquired substantial livestock and wealth. And we're discovering that Jacob is more patient than most of us would be. He's playing the long game, isn't he? He desires to go back to the land that God has promised to him and, and to his offspring, but he has stayed the course. Now, he has a large family. He has many possessions. But even though he has all these things going for him, his homeland near Beersheba has to seem a lot further away than the map would indicate for him. It's only roughly 300 miles from Haran, where he is now, to Beersheba. But his past has to make it seem so far away. Add in all the responsibility that he now has towards his family and and this wealth that he's acquired, all these people who serve him, all this extra responsibility. And I'm guessing that distance feels even further away. But still we see that Jacob desires to return to the land that God has promised. And that is exactly 
what we're going to see that he does. And so we find ourselves with Jacob as we go through chapter 31 of Genesis here today. And as we normally do, we're going to break it down into three points to help keep this story going. It's such a long one. We're going to use these points to help keep us on track here. The first thing we're going to see today is that God calls Jacob to leave Haran. We've seen Jacob posturing for an opportunity to leave, but he hasn't done it. Well, now the return of Jacob to the land of promise has been commanded by God. And Jacob plans to do just as he has been told. Secondly, we see that Laban is going to pursue Jacob. There are some interesting details in this part of the story. Rachel has stolen the household idols, and beyond that, Laban isn't happy that his children and grandchildren are leaving him, and so he pursues Jacob. And finally, we see that a covenant is made between Jacob and Laban to bring a peaceful resolution to this conflict. Laban doesn't want them to leave, but Jacob has been commanded by God to depart. And so a covenant is made that will ensure peace, and Jacob and his family depart with Laban's blessing. And so as we come to this story, we're getting the impression that Jacob's welcome is sort of wearing out in Haran here. Uh, We've seen before that Jacob is desiring to return to the land, but as I said just a moment ago, Jacob seems to have been rather, have become a rather patient man since all that time in the past. In the past, we've, we've seen him scrambling to get Esau's birthright and, and scrambling to steal that blessing, right? Well, he worked seven years only to be deceived by Laban. And he worked another seven years to acquire the hand of Rachel. And now he's worked six years to work for the striped and spotted sheep and goats. Now, you kind of have to ask yourself, is this all patience? Has Jacob learned patience? Or is it also a hesitancy to deal with his past? You know, we've all had something we didn't really want to do, right? And so what do we do? We avoid certain things that might force us to do that, hoping that eh, if we kind of avoid this, maybe we won't have to do that hard thing. Uh, In fact, we might actually casually sabotage ourselves, right? Trying to keep ourselves from having to take care of these difficult things. But any of the tasks that you or I would avoid are likely no big deal compared to the reasons that Jacob doesn't want to go home. My desire to avoid a task of some sort is rooted in nervousness or uncertainty or just a desire to procrastinate, right? Jacob doesn't want to go back to the land of the promise because he has an angry brother there. A brother that he crossed and then This brother threatened to take his life. That's kind of a big deal. But we see that things are happening that are starting to stress this situation with Laban. And God, in his sovereignty, is using these things to move Jacob to where he needs to be. And it's really interesting how this plays out. The the sons of Laban are upset at how Jacob is prospering, yet we know that they know how their father has you know, tried to make this not happen. They have to see that his prosperity has to be coming from the hand of God because they, they've been involved this whole time. They would have been there when Leah was passed off as Rachel at the wedding feast, right? I'm guessing that they probably got themselves a relatively good chuckle out of the deal and could have possibly been in on the whole thing, right? And they also had firsthand knowledge of how Laban 
tried to manipulate this deal with the goats and the sheep. These guys know that Jacob hasn't taken a thing. Jacob hasn't stolen anything. He has prospered in spite of everything that has been thrown up as an obstacle in his way. And then we are also invited into the thoughts of Jacob. He's noticing that Laban isn't wild about him anymore. He's hearing the buzz. And so all this comes together, and in the midst of it, we see that the Lord speaks to Jacob. He is to return to the land of his fathers and his family. And then comes a statement of reassurance from God. This is what he says, I will be with you. And Jacob has heard this before. He knows God has said this, but God is gracious to him, and he reminds him of this truth. And honestly, we can't look down on Jacob for needing this reminder, right? Needing this reminder that God is going to be with him. This reminder that God is using to push him out the door and head back west to the promised land. We can't look down on him because we do the same thing. How often do we forget the gospel? How often do we need to be reminded that we are Christ's own? And that we are in him and so our sins are forgiven. We need it daily. And I think we all have days where we might need the reminder of the gospel hourly. And as I said, God is gracious to Jacob. And he gives him this reminder And we find that this is what Jacob needed. He calls for his wives. He lets them know the plan, fills them in on the details. Things have gone south, but God has been with him. We've seen all the things that Laban has done. Laban has worked against Jacob. And so by working against Jacob, what is he doing? He's working against his own daughters and his own grandchildren. You can understand why why Rachel and Leah are ready to go. How could could Laban do this to us? But one thing that Jacob testifies to, that God has protected him and his family. And in this sharing of information with Leah and Rachel that we see here, we get a little bit of a deeper insight into everything that has happened. We saw last week that there were these details about having the flocks increase, but now we know that God came to Jacob in a dream. This isn't something new. God has been coming to Jacob and telling him these things. And so notice here in this part of the passage how God identifies himself. I'm the God of Bethel. Remember, Bethel is the house of God. That's where where Jacob received the blessing. That's where Jacob saw God come down the ladder to him and make a promise to him. This is the God that Jacob set up a pillar to, and he made a vow to him. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac. And now we're, we're understanding something new. This isn't just the God of Abraham and Isaac anymore. This is the God of Jacob. He's Jacob's God too. And he is calling Jacob to return to the land of the promise, to return to his people. And so after the case is made and they, they hear all the details, Rachel and Leah on board, they realize that there's nothing for them in the house of their father. Imagine for a second, being Leah and Rachel. Their father has, has worked to take wealth and, and property away from the one who is to provide for you. They know that if they remain where they are, their brothers will claim it all away from Jacob. And you can see that, that they're unhappy with the fact that Laban was given a fair price for their hand of marriage, 
but he's still acquiring, uh, trying to acquire more. And so everything has worked together here. This whole story shows the hand of God over Jacob. It's prepared Jacob to leave, but it's also prepared his wives to leave their family. And so with all this set up, they leave. But before we move on to the second point, we need to see an interesting little detail of their departure. They leave secretly because they're obviously concerned that Laban will do something to either harm Jacob or do something to stop them from leaving. But we see something really odd in this story. Rachel steals the household gods. What, what's going on here? Well, these were small pagan idols that were seen to be protectors of the household, and they were also used in divination. Now remember, last week we saw that Laban believed in God, but we also saw that he was a pagan man in a pagan land. He was practicing divination instead of trusting God. He was trying to find out why it was that Jacob was so prosperous, so he, he used divination instead of using common sense or trusting that God's hand was at work. So we see that this is who Laban is, a pagan man in a pagan land. So Rachel steals these idols, these household gods. And so what we're seeing here is that Rachel is not like Sarah. Rachel is not like Rebecca. She's still attached to her pagan roots. She still has this connection. Remember, they're in the east. We want to go west towards the presence of God. Rachel has roots and anchors there in the east. She is, she is stuck in that pagan mindset. So once again, we have something in the story that you and I would not expect. This is not what you and I would think would happen. Shouldn't Rachel be the, the pinnacle of virtue and everything amazing? Isn't that who Rachel should be? She's the one that Jacob desired. She's the mother of, of Joseph. Shouldn't she be the perfect example of faith? But she isn't. And we're going to see that this is going to lead to some conflict. And so as we look at this, we move on to our second point, and we see that Jacob means business about getting out of Haran. He flees, he crosses the Euphrates River, and we see that he sets his face towards the hill country of Gilead. In other words, Jacob is getting out of Dodge while the getting is good, right? He is leaving. He's doing it as quickly as possible. And so this brings us to our second point. Laban is pursuing Jacob. Now it takes three days for Laban to get the news. That's, that's a pretty good sneaky departure. You've got to give Jacob some credit here. But Laban isn't about to let his family go. And so what's going on here? Isn't just that he's like, they left without telling me I didn't get to kiss my little cute little grandchildren goodbye. That's not what's going on here. This isn't about, uh, about being able to say goodbye. Notice what he does. He takes his kinsmen. He has manpower. And if you feel that, that he's willing to take Jacob back by force, then you're getting the point of what the text is trying to get you to understand. This is obvious because God comes to Laban in a dream. And what does he tell him? You should do nothing to Jacob, whether good or bad. Obviously, there was bad intentions here from Laban. And isn't that interesting? That God tells him not to harm Jacob, and then give him something. That's what kind of what you would expect, right? Laban, you shall not harm Jacob. Instead, give him more goats and sheep. But that's not what happens. Laban is to be indifferent to Jacob. 
Because the one who is going to protect Jacob, the one who is going to bless Jacob, is not Laban. It's God. It's not going to be man. It is going to be God who blesses Jacob. And you really have to appreciate this story because it's already pretty dramatic. This is an interesting story. You have the tension of Jacob telling his wives that they're leaving their country and their family. You have uh, them leaving without informing Laban. And now, like any good action movie, you have a chase scene. I mean, what good movie, what good action movie doesn't have a chase scene? And here we have it. This is good stuff. This is high drama. And with God intervening, you might think it's over. But even though God has appeared to Laban, he still overtakes Jacob. You'd think he would go home and give up the chase, but he still continues on. And I don't know about you, but when I read this part of the text, I have to laugh at, the, at this section quite a bit. Um, really, Laban? This is what we're doing? Really? You're going to play it this way? You're upset with Jacob leaving and doing something secretly? You? You're the one who decided to sneak the wrong bride into the tent, man. You're the one who made a deal with Jacob regarding the livestock and immediately did something sneaky with those livestock so that he wouldn't get blessed by their offspring. You're really going to play this story like this, Laban? This is who you are? This is what we're going to do? Let me get this straight. You want to have a party to celebrate their departure when you set out with enough people to pursue and overtake them. You really think that a party was going to happen. You brought enough people along to have a party, but I don't think, Laban, that that was your intention. Well, there's a reason that Laban brings up this idea of, of throwing a party for them to leave. This, this was actually customary practice, to have this kind of a party when somebody departs. Now, this is a classic excuse that Laban uses. Now, remember back, when Jacob was forced to marry Leah, what was Laban's excuse? It's our custom. You had to do this, Jacob. Well, now he appeals to another custom to tell Jacob that he shouldn't have left secretly. Let's forget the whole problem of deception and taking advantage of people. But that isn't Laban's way. We see this in the fact that he lets Jacob know who's boss. He tells Jacob that I have the power to harm you. But, but God intervened. You know, it's, it's that threat of force, like, I would do this, but they're keeping me from doing it. Just, I want you to know who's boss, Jacob. But this is an important detail. God is doing exactly what God promised to do, isn't he? What did he tell Jacob at the beginning of this passage? I will be with you. I'm going to care for you, Jacob. And that's what he's doing. He's caring for him. He's protecting him. And as the story continues, we see the detail of the household gods come back in. We see that Jacob had no idea that this happened. They had no idea that these idols were stolen. And he obviously doesn't know that his beloved Rachel has taken them because he threatens the punishment of death to the person who has them. Now, the tension in this story, the, we had the chase scene, we have Laban asserting power, and now we have this tension of, is Laban going to find the household gods with his daughter? Is he going to find these idols? Is she going to have to die? You have to wonder, is Jacob going to have to put Rachel to death? Will Laban find this? 
But we find that Rachel inherited something more than her eyes or her good looks from Laban. She's a great deceiver, isn't she? She found a way to get the heat off of her and to avoid having to be punished for stealing these idols. All this comes together, though. This is used for Jacob to tell Laban what he really thinks. And we see this in verses 36 through 42. Because Jacob has every right to be upset with Laban. We're finally getting Jacob sharing his opinion. As we've rehearsed so many times before, Laban is the guilty party here. He's deceived Jacob. He's taken advantage of Jacob. He has changed his mind on wages. Jacob, on the other hand, has shown Laban that he has acted with integrity. He did everything on the up and up. He, he points out the things that he has done for Laban and lets him know that he didn't need to do these things. But for 20 years, he's done what was asked of him, and he acted with the utmost integrity. You and I probably wouldn't have lasted for 20 days working with someone with Laban who deceives us and, and does all this. We wouldn't have lasted 20 days, but what did Jacob do? He faithfully served for 20 years. But notice something really important in this section of the text. Where does Jacob give credit? He gives credit to God. He knows that things under Laban could have been far worse, but God has looked out for him. Surely the Lord is on the side of Jacob, and Laban must know this is true because God has spoken to Laban. And even though Laban is a pagan man who is concerned with his pagan idols, he knows where the true power lies, doesn't he? And we see this as we arrive at our final point when we see Laban make a covenant with Jacob. The response of Laban is interesting here. And if I was Jacob, I would have rolled my eyes so hard at this statement. Oh my goodness. He says that Jacob's wives are his, the children are his, and the flocks are also his. 20 years! 20 years and dishonesty from this guy. And he has the gall to claim that all my stuff is his. Give me a break, Laban. Jacob has just got done proving the point that, that these are his through agreements, through his working faithfully, through his working with integrity. You want to just look, at, look Laban in the eyes and say, let it go, man. What's wrong with you? Jacob is blessed by God, and he, and he has rightfully acquired these possessions. But what does this show us? That Jacob was totally correct to leave secretly in the middle of the night because Laban saw all that he took as rightfully his, even though it wasn't his. Laban would have done something. The fears of Jacob are proven to be true in just this one sentence from, from Laban where he claims to own all of what Jacob has. But thank, thankfully, we see that Laban knows something. He knows that God is on the side of Jacob. He doesn't submit because he thinks he's wrong. He doesn't give this up because he doesn't think that the children are his. He submits because he has the fear of God put into him. He believes that God is on the side of Jacob. He submits because the dream had literally put the fear of God into him. So he wants to do something that we have seen a few times in the book of Genesis. He wants to make a covenant. Now this covenant is a treaty of non-aggression. We've seen Abraham and Isaac do this with the Philistines and we have seen God making covenants with people. They're an agreement of peace between two parties. And so we see here in this covenant 
that Jacob sets up a stone as a pillar. He's done this before. And so these are landmarks. These are for the people of God who will come after Jacob, the people who are going to hear these stories, and they're going to be walking through the promised land, and they're going to see that pillar, and their parents are going to say, you see that pillar right there? That is where Laban and Jacob made a covenant, and that's where God protected your father Jacob from Laban, from being overtaken, from having his possessions taken away. This is where God protected our people. That's what's going on here. That's why they set up these pillars to pass the story on to the generations. This is going to be remembered. And there's more to this agreement than just Laban isn't going to take stuff from Jacob. The agreement is that Jacob will also take care of his daughters and not take any more wives. And then there's something else that's significant about this pillar. Again, it's not just a reminder of where this covenant came. It's also a dividing point. They make a covenant in the name of God, and they say, we're not going to go past here, you're not going to go past here, and then what do they do? They eat. You've heard me say this before. This is how covenants are ratified. This is how we know that a covenant has taken place. Pointed this out before. Covenants are made with meals, just as the Lord Jesus Christ instituted a covenant meal with his people on the night in which he was betrayed. Meals and covenants go together. And so after this covenant is established, they they part ways. And we see that there is a peace because Laban has given a blessing to his grandchildren and to his daughters. God has not only protected his people, that's what we're meant to see, that God is protecting his people, but it's more than that. It's so much more. He gives a blessing. God has caused it to pass that they will be protected from Laban's family, but they have also received a blessing. And so this is a passage that is another interesting story in a sequence of events in the life of Jacob where we see the hand of God upon him. But what do you and I do with this passage? It's long, it's difficult to understand the details of. What what do we do with it here in the 21st century to apply it to our lives? Because this is the inspired, inerrant word of God. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What do we do with it? How do we apply it to our lives? So, As we think about the story of Jacob, we've seen an interesting path. It's filled with twists and turns. Jacob's a scoundrel, but at the same time, we've come to start to feel for this scoundrel because his life ends up with him going from the position of deception to being the one who's deceived. We're starting to feel for Jacob here. So as we came to this point in the story today, it feels as though the life of Jacob is in jeopardy And therefore, the promise of God is in jeopardy once again. So what we find here is that no matter what happens in the life of Jacob, God is with him. God is guiding him. He is working all things together for the good of Jacob. And why is that? It's because God loves his people. And in saying that he loves his people, I'm not just meaning that he loves Jacob. He loves Rachel. He loves Leah. He loves all the 12 kids. No, God protected Jacob because he cared for you. His providence is protecting the covenant line that brings us Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, life, death, resurrection for salvation that you receive. And so the protecting of Jacob is protecting the line of Jesus, which is bringing about salvation for you. 
God was guiding Jacob, but it also comes down to us. Because we are God's people by faith, we can trust that God is also working things for good for us in our lives. It may seem as though God is not in control. It seemed that way with Jacob, didn't it? But God was in control. The last thing you would think with with Jacob's experience with Laban is that God's doing all this stuff. But clearly he was. And he was using the circumstances to mold and to shape Jacob and to bring glory to himself. And so when things seem out of control in the world or in our lives, we can trust that God is working for your good and for his glory, just as he was for Jacob. We see God taking the worst of circumstances and shaping them for his good and for Jacob's good. And so we can trust that God does the same for us. And secondly, we see something here that is so important for us to remember. Think about the contrast that we have through this whole story between Laban and Jacob. Laban is a man in the east who's away from the presence of God, and we find out that he's an idolater. And Jacob is desiring to leave the east and return to the presence of God. And we can see the things that he now values. Jacob is patient. Jacob values his family. Jacob desires to hear God and to be near to God. And in our time, and frankly in any time, to be a Laban is normal and it's desired to seek the good of yourself, to desire what you want, to do it by any means necessary. To be a Laban, to be in the East, is a good thing in our culture. But are we going to be a Laban or are we going to be a Jacob? Because to be a Jacob is countercultural. He works hard. He trusts that God will protect him. Now, it took a long time for Jacob to get there, but God shaped him. And he is returning to the presence of God, and he's fleeing the world. And we often feel as though God is so far away. It feels as though God is so far from us. Just like I talked about in the beginning with the the perception of distance. We feel as though God is so far away. But we have to remember that God is closer than we can imagine. Because he he is as close to us as the very word that has been proclaimed. He is as near to you as the Holy Spirit that indwells us. And so as we hear the gospel... May we run toward God ourselves. May we flee the world and run towards God, trusting that God is the one who is guiding us. God is the one who blesses us and that he is the one who takes our lives and builds us up in faith that we might be holy and set apart to him, that our lives might bring glory to his great and glorious name. Amen.